you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey folks, I'm Sean Payton, head coach of the New Orleans Saints, and you're listening to the Huddle and Flow Podcast. We are heading into the final week of the NFL season, and here on the Huddle and Flow, we've got so many great storylines. You know, we got AJ Dillon showing up in Green Bay like they got more. Packers got more and a beast of a runner. And you know, I'm just like, man, they what they did to Tennessee on Sunday night, Jim. You know what? <laughs> well, the thing that was so telling in that game for me, if you go back to last year or even previous seasons with Green Bay, I think the one thing people felt is if you got physical with them, um, they would struggle with that. And we saw that a year ago, even with the 49ers. They yep. out physical Green Bay um, in those meetings. Sunday night, Green Bay gets to match up with a bully, you know, a team that prides itself on physicality and pushing people around. And Green Bay went not only went toe-to-toe, but delivered the knockout blow. So I, I got to say, more than any other team perhaps um, in the league right now, I'm really impressed with Green Bay, who seems to have kind of remade itself from what I envisioned coming into the year. And if Green Bay can play physical football like that with a quarterback who's playing on the level that Aaron Rodgers is playing on and a receiver like Devontae Adams, who, in my opinion right now, is the offensive player of the year, um, they are going to be an extremely tough out. And I'm talking all the way to the to the uh, Super Bowl. I, I, I agree. And what's funny is after the game, Aaron Rodgers was telling people about it. He was like, oh, yeah, we heard everyone say we hadn't played anybody. We heard people say we hadn't played a complete um, four quarters, that we don't respond well. Uh, well, that was our response. He was like, and your mamas. <laughs> I was like, Aaron, okay, Aaron well. Is- 
Aaron at times can be so passive aggressive, you know, um, and so, so with his dry humor, you know, make his points and whatnot. But when he wants to bring it, he can flat out bring it, man. Just like when he's throwing a pass, when he wants to deliver it, the fastball, he knows how to deliver it. Oh, he he was amazing. And, you know, we have a, a lot of other interesting storylines going to week 17. The Rams, Jerry Goff breaks his thumb. We don't know if he's going to play. They're in a win. They, they pretty much have to win, not necessarily, but have to beat Arizona. But if he doesn't play, they're going See, to John. How, do you, how does a quarterback play with a broken thumb? Yeah. I mean, we I, I remember like Carson Wentz, when he had, he couldn't hand the ball off. He couldn't take things from under center. Um, you know, we saw Drew Brees couldn't do it. So let's say they go to John Wolford. You protect, you try to protect your running back with a running game. But, oh, yeah, Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson, their top two running backs are out with high ankle sprains. Um, the one thing we talk about when you start to get down to that final month of the season and, and, and more specifically the final week, health is so important. And um, to lose your quarterback, your top two running backs, look – the reason I say I don't know how you can play with it with a broken thumb is beyond the obvious is that Jared Goff has had ball security issues even when healthy. Yep. So now imagine him with a bad hand um, trying to, to protect the football. I just don't see it. So the thing that's dis- or, or the thing that's interesting to me, too, now they get to play an Arizona team, which has not been playing well of late, particularly no. offensively. And we know that the Rams defense has been bringing it for the most part. So it's going to be an interesting matchup, even if Jared Goff doesn't play, because I think that that the Rams defense is going to try and put that game on its shoulders. Yeah, and it's interesting with that with Arizona, Jim, because, you know, they look so exciting and everything early in the season. They've got the D-Hop and Kyler Murray and all these guys doing things, but it's not translating, man. And so soon, I think we're going to start hearing some some shouts about what Cliff Kingsbury and those guys are, are doing down there. We know – in the coaching fraternity, there's already a lot of raised eyebrows um, about what's going on down there. But publicly, you know, he's kind of gotten a pass or building and developing. So so we'll see. But, Jim, the one thing going into Week 17, there's a lot of great storylines on the field, off the field. And you and I are both storytellers. Um, but Tom Rinaldi, the ESPN storyteller who's now going to take a job at Fox, who's probably – terms of the broadcast medium the best that there is is going to be joining us in in just a few minutes and i know this you know this might go over your head because it's one of the greatest rap songs ever but it's called the art of storytelling by outcast and slick rick our producer thomas warren may know what it is you're right i don't know it (laughs) okay but but you know that's one thing i want to discuss with him the, the art of storytelling because jim it is like when he does a feature be it on golf or whatever people are all on twitter like i'm crying tom Rinaldi, you got, you got me again get the tissue and, ready yeah i mean so so it's gonna be so cool having him on to talk about so much about what we do but how he captures the story how he finds the story captures it and then puts it out is to where you're riveted because he you know look as we say in our business jim so you're not gonna hit home runs all the time sometimes you gotta take that infield single just to get to first base but he he is knocking him out of the park time after time. Yeah, he's he's the best, in my opinion, when it comes to broadcast storytelling. And, and it's one of the reasons I really wanted to have him on, because um, one of the things we wanted to do with this podcast is not only focus on football or, or culture or community issues, but also the business of journalism. And 
I, look, I've said this before, but I'm always fascinated by people who are among the best at what they do, kind of what motivates them, what makes them tick, how do they do what they do, all those sorts of things. And Tom is one of those people. So to be able to have him on, this is like a master's course in journalism for any of the young uh, journalists who are going to to listen to this and who aspire to be storytellers on television or even in print. We could have kept him on for another hour or two or whatever. I had so many questions about it. Yeah. And I just, I'm fascinated with people like that. And he is, he is truly one of the best, if not the best at what he does. Okay. And he's, he's won Emmys. Um, He's won multiple Emmys. Uh, Edward R. Murrow Awards. Edward R. Murrow Awards. Jim, and you know him, you worked with him at ESPN. Besides being so great at what he does, he's one of the most gracious human beings in our industry. You know, that Steve, it's a great point because when I first got to ESPN, remember, I'm coming from a print background. I've never really done television features before. I don't know anything about it, which um, that's another story for another day. But I remember I um, called Tom. He doesn't know me from Adam in terms of personally. We've never met, never talked. And I just called him. I can't. Well, did I call him or email? Anyway, we got on the phone together and I just wanted to pick his brain. And someone of his stature was just so gracious to give me the time that I needed to talk about, you know, um, his approach to storytelling and that sort of thing. And it always stuck with me, you know, that no matter how big you get, um, humility and being able to being willing to help others um, never get away from that. Never forget that you're never too big. And so I, I, I have always appreciated that about him. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who can tell a story like that. I'm sure he's done it for many others, but just a tremendous um, credit to the profession. And I know listeners will get a lot out of this who aspire to be storytellers in this business. So on that note, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Rinaldi. All right, Jim, this is fantastic. Um, you know, because you and I consider ourselves storytellers, but, you know, we're, we're, we're what, what do they call it, you know, nowadays, tier two? <laughs> Maybe. We're bringing in a tier well, one, like like, yeah. like like the king, right? The, the, the one everyone aspires to be. And that is now Fox's Tom Rinaldi, a former co- soon to be Fox. Soon to be. Um, ESPN, soon to be Fox's Tom Rinaldi, one of your – former colleagues. Tom, wake, welcome so much to the Hull and Flow podcast. Steve, thank you for, for having me so much, Jim. You too. I was I was thrilled. You know, Jim reached out and it was just kind of a bit of a bolt from the blue. And as soon as you told me what it was about, I just said, you know, are you sure you want to talk to me? And, uh, and then, yeah, absolutely. So look, looking forward to it. Thanks so much for having me on. Look, Steve, when you start talking about tears, I think when it comes to time, we might be down at three or four, you know, L- listen to this resume. Oh, wait, listen to this resume. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's a 16 time National Sports Emmy winner. He's had 40 total Emmy nominations in five separate categories, including writing, reporting and feature storytelling and seven Edward R. Murrow Awards. So, um, Tom, with all due respect, when we talk about the greats of storytelling, you are right up there. So we couldn't be more honored to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate you. Thank you. 
I would love I would love to do this. We we have a lot of young journalists who listen to this show, and I just want to talk about the business and the process of storytelling. So I'm going to start with something that's just basic to you. What is a good story? I think there's a difference, guys, and I think each of us learn this in our own way. And I think it took me way too long to learn it. And I think in a way, it's easily described through a visual. A report, which absolutely has value, no question. Visually, to me, a report is a line. A story is a wave. A line can take you from one point to another. It can impart knowledge to you. But does it take you up or down? Is there a low point and turning point? Or are you being taken someplace that has some, some dips and some curves in it, as opposed to the straight imparting of knowledge, which is more like a line? And as you take a step back and you consider what this might be that you want to impart to people that you want to share with a readership or a viewership or audience, however it's defined now, I think thinking sometimes in those lines has helped me in terms of the visual and the line versus the wave. When, when did you realize that? I think when I came to, and this is probably another thing that took me way too long to come to, and I'd be curious as to what you guys think. You know, you, 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 we work hard. We try to churn out as best we can content with as much care as we can. But do we really take a moment, take a step back and think, what are the themes that really compel us most? What are they? And for me, this was invaluable for me. A few years ago, I did that. And I really took a step back to say, if I could try to give language to the two or three themes that compel me the most, I'm not saying every story I do is going to have one of them, but the ones that compel me most, that I most want to tell, revolve around these three themes. The line between living and dying, because it's inherently dramatic in terms of mortality and survival. Greatness, its pursuit, its cost, its attainment, and forgiveness. The, the only dynamic that really exists uniquely to humanity in all of living things. You can't find forgiveness in any other living entity on earth. Only humanity seems capable of it. So in that regard, those were the three themes that I found compelled me the most. Tom, you know, we're all writers here. And this is where I think it's interesting because as writers, I think we learn to tell stories without the visual, right? We try to take you through words, through something cosmic, so to speak. But then when you add the visual to it, it almost takes a little bit of the words away from it, right? How do how were you able to fuse the words and the visual and to let the images touch the heart, so to speak, or to hit the soul as opposed to the written word? You're taking sometimes the very best thing that a subject shares and you're using it to craft a scene through your own talent, shape, and lens. TV, it's the exact opposite of that. If you're doing a compelling interview 
and you find that someone is sharing something that is of the deepest and richest material, that needs to be showcased. Everything exists as a frame around that sound. The best stories you, you really come away from not really with a sense of who shared it with you in, t in TV or in the visual. The storyteller is truly secondary to the framing of the sound and the visual that brings to life the experience, the story you're trying to convey. In the written realm, that's completely different. You, you are so challenged with building and populating and coloring that entire world for the viewer to see, which is why, like, just, just to pick an example, one of the things I think Jim does so effectively in some of the longer form work he's done is he often begins, Jim, you often begin with a moment in time. You want to drop the reader, right? Immersive. Here's a moment. Let's go. The burden on the writer in that is pretty steep to try to, to try to create all at once a world that you're dropping the reader into. And from there, building out the story that might come. When I got to ESPN, I hadn't done a lot of TV in terms of feature reporting and whatnot. And I'll never forget this. I went in with the idea that the story is not about me. And therefore, the less I am seen and the less I am heard, the better. Can I tell this story without my voice, literally my voice, or my image on TV? And I'll never forget this. A TV person came to me and said, no, that's the wrong way. You need to quickly establish this as your story. Have yourself on camera, your voice heard early on. I'm curious from your standpoint, what is the right or wrong way or how do you approach it? Wow, Jim, that's fascinating because no one ever said that to me. Maybe because I don't have the cut of your jib. I'm not as charismatic. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't uh, have a laugh like that. Uh, Listen, I don't know why Steve's no, laughing. You may no, want to take that up with him later on that. But, but what I mean here, Jim, is I, that's just never been the approach I think that I've taken, although I do see the value in it. It is what I mean. You're the viewer's proxy, Jim right? In TV. I know, Steve, you, you can relate to this. That as, as you ask a, a certain kind of question, if the question is going to be used, we're, we're all, it's ingrained in us as viewers. We want to know who's our proxy, who's mm -hmm. asking that question on our behalf. And so there's now an identity that comes with that. There's a connection with the viewer. And, and, I, and I think, Jim, your approach is correct. I think most of the time, yes, there are times where the viewer knowing who's asking the question does build connection and does have value. But many, many times, no one remembers the question. Few people remember the storyteller. They're locked in on what did that subject tell you? What did she share with you that then you can, that, that, fills the vacuum of the lens and that you work to frame. Tom, and I think Jim and I probably have both been there and you've probably been there. The best long form or the best stories I've told are the ones that I've become emotionally <laughs> invested in. When you're, it, it, first off, do you find that to be the case? And secondly, if so, how deep does it take you where you have to say, I've got to distance myself from this or I'm going to roll with this 
full throated because this is this is just where it's going to hit. For some of the younger journalists, or or for anyone who hasn't done a story of this nature, I'll start here. That what I think is this flawed premise that somehow big J journalist or big R reporter means you check your humanity someplace hmm. else. I think that I don't know where I just reject that whole cloth. And I think you guys do, too. Like that would make you worse at what you're doing than better. So that's number one. Number two, each of us has felt and it's it's an incredible privilege, but it's an awesome burden when someone entrusts you with his story especially the platforms you guys are on, right? A national platform, I'm entrusting you with this precious territory in my life, in my journey, in my story. I know each of us has walked away from interviews before we've then crafted the story, feeling this awesome weight, like, how am I going to deliver on this? Right. 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 And I don't mean... And here's where people get it. I think people get it twisted, like not to please that person, right. not not to somehow gloss over the, the difficult moments. It's to honor the trust that's been placed in you. Tom, uh, I'm curious about two things. Um, number one, I think you used a very important word there in what you were talking about, where you said trust. I think any story of consequence, there has to be a trust built up with the subject. How do you develop that trust, particularly when it's someone you don't know or you're meeting for the first time, whatever? How do you get them to a point where they're so comfortable that they will open up and tell their story to you, perhaps in a way they might not to anyone else? It's curiosity as as a first fundamental, like to be genuinely, earnestly curious about that person's experience. And how does that manifest? It manifests in, in really listening. Not, and oh my gosh, can I tell you how long, it took me way too long to, to, to begin to disregard this, to do the prep, have the questions, but then after the questions posed, I think back to the people I interviewed earlier in my career, they're, they're saying something of great meaning, and what am I doing? I'm, I'm looking down at the pad. I'm <laughs> That's just horrendous. And I did that. I mean, so many times, like, what's my next question? What? Listen to what that person is sharing with you and then follow it up. Because that's where I think some of that trust comes through. I mean, oh, my God, I cringe when I think of the things that uh, the interviews I botched and, and the ways that I didn't foster that connection or trust away any human being should because I was worried about, you know, the job and being a reporter versus, okay, let me just listen to you here. I mean, be prepared, know, know, the, know the through lines, know the flow of the interview, know the points to explore. So, and the last thing I'd say, Jim, is, is I really think it's sometimes by saying something, let's say you know you're going to cover some difficult stuff. There's a few ways to do that, but one is to say, if it's me and you, Jim, to say, Jim, I'm going to pay you the respect 
of asking you some of these difficult things in a very straightforward way. You answer in whatever way you wish, but just know that the questions come from a place of deep respect. You know, and, and the other thing, sometimes when we do difficult interviews or interviews with people in difficult situations, sometimes there's this other fallacy that it took me too long to, to work through. In the so-called accountability interview, where you're speaking to somebody who's been through something difficult or who's been the subject of public criticism or scrutiny, we're not here and the other person isn't here. We're here. That's all. We're just here. That doesn't mean, you, you know, that you're quote unquote soft or you're not asking the appropriate question or, but there's a way to do that in a direct, respectful, fair way. I'm not saying I live up to that all the time, but, but I try to keep that in mind. I'm sure you guys are like, I'll hit you with a question here. I'll start with Steve and to the degree you're comfortable to share it. Mm -hmm. The toughest response you ever got back from a piece. Wow. You know, and, 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 look, and a lot of people might be thinking I'm getting cussed out or something like that. But the toughest response I ever got, I did a story on a boxer named Phil Jackson. And to me, when, when I talk about the great, the great stories I've done is boxers. Because anybody who gets beat up for a living or is willing to risk their life for a living, I, I, it's just incredible stories, right? But I did a big takeout story on Phil Jackson, who grew up in Overtown down in Miami when I was working down at the Miami Herald. And my raw copy that went in for the edit told the story when it came out of the edit is when I was like, this isn't what I meant, right? This isn't, this isn't what this guy is living, right? This guy had like five, six, seven kids. He'd been locked up. He's trying to, he's fight. He was going to fight Lennox Lewis for the championship. Wow. This was the fight. This was the fight to get him out of overtown. So the theme was the fight to get him out of overtown, but the hold, that Overtown had on him and is getting out really what he wants to do, right? That was the theme. And when it came out, it came out like he was really on Overtown. And so I read the piece and was like, this isn't it. And when I got the phone call from him and his people, he's like, man, I can't go back to Overtown. Wow. He's like, these people hate me because – and when I think about it, and I think about the editing process of it, it was from people who never had set foot in Overtown, from people who never had to knock on somebody's window to see if they could come in, if it was safe to come in, or if they can get a bite to eat, because there was nothing. Like it was, it was edited through a prism of eyes that had never walked the footsteps that I walk with this guy even for a couple of days. Right. And so when it came out, I was like, oh, can you imagine this guy grew up here? And now he's saying that the people there who he trusted hated him. Wow. And that was me being young and being afraid to tell, you know, hmm. some editors like this isn't it. Hold the story or something like that. But that was by far. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't I could not to this day. I can't reconcile that. I mean, it was really like, geez. You know, that that's a that's a kick in the gut when you talk about the harshest response you ever get. It's not getting cussed out, 
somebody calling you saying, I can't go back. Jim? Yeah, I, don't, I don't I don't think it's, at least for me personally, I don't think it's ever when anyone is angry at me. It's more when they're disappointed in me. Right. That's when I feel it. Because you feel like you've let someone down that you haven't told their story correctly. If there's one story with me that that sticks out, it wasn't a reaction. Um, and I and I tell this story to young journalists too. You're going to find yourself at times in some very difficult situations where where your character is going to be tested. And um, for me, it was I happened to be a high school writer in San Diego, and I was covering East County sports. And there was a, a young girl out there who was the most prolific three-point shooter in, in county history, um, really talented. Well, one day, um, her father kills the wife and then turns the gun on himself. So it's a murder-suicide. And um, so I remember I get in the office and I've got the news desk saying, can you call them and get you know, some sort of, call her and get some sort of response? And I'm thinking to myself, she's just lost her mother and her father. Again, I'm a young reporter, so I want to make my way. And um, so I remember I called the house and the grandmother answered and knew who I was and whatnot, because I had written on her fairly extensively. And the grandmother actually put her on the phone. And at that point, I had a decision to make. And are you going to be a reporter? Are you going to be a human being? And so I simply said to her, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. And if there's anything I can do, because she was crying, you know, I said, just let me know. And then I went back to the desk and I said, there's no comment. Was I wrong from a reporter standpoint? Probably from a human standpoint. Not at all. And I, I don't. Yeah, well, but Jim and, and I would get, again, I would love to get Steve's take on that, like. Why do you even say, was I wrong from the reporter standpoint? You know, maybe. Why? Because we all have a job to do in life. And our job as a reporter is to ask difficult questions in difficult circumstances. Yeah. And for everyone, your your level of, you know, humanity may be different. And for me, I just could not ask that teenage girl Oh. about losing both her mom and dad on that day. I just couldn't. Not for not not for print, not for, not putting her out like that. Now maybe as yeah. time passes and she wants to discuss it, that's a different story. But it's just too fresh, too raw. And so that's what I say to young young reporters. There are going to be times you find yourself in those situations and nobody has no one can answer those questions but you. I want to I want to get you on this because you've had so many, you know, great experience, you know, college football, golf, the variety of sports, variety of personalities. Is there a genre, so to speak? Like you heard me say, like the, the, to me, boxers and, and the sport of boxing is where the greatest human stories come from. But is, is there a genre that you've come across where you get some of, the, some of the best stories that you like to tell? Listen, it's hard to equal individual sport. You know, you're out there. Tennis, right? Boxing. You, it, golf it's you you're out there you're exposed you're vulnerable and there's so many compelling stories in that vein on the team side i think i know i will always be fascinated by and drawn toward coaches 
because right. I, there's because there's so much I think maybe in the college game you know more than the program the pro game there's so much involved in that role I, I mean they are outsized figures not only at their schools not only sometimes in their sport in their state in their region coaches were in all these the, the, the player got hurt the player was homesick you know whatever it may be i just think there's a lot that's fascinating to me about coaches and about individual athletes i mean athletes in individual sport how how do you two-part question how do you find your stories and then what is your process in terms of prepping for those stories so Listen, in our business, as we know, the greatest currency comes in ideas. And I could even say in our business and scratch that out, in any pursuit, the greatest currency is the idea. <laughs> Having said that, I am below the Mendoza line in pitching stories. And anybody at ESPN will tell you that. I mean, I get fewer than two of 10 through and across the line. <laughs> Certainly, I mean, I, I just don't. Um, one of the wonderful things, and I hope you guys, I mean, I think you guys can relate to this, is when, when you do have the nation as a canvas in whatever particular sport, or even when, when you're in a, a big city, or when you're in Miami, when you're, the canvas is big. And one story can sometimes lead to the next story. People like the way you rendered something. People happen. To, and those are where the stories tend to come from. Um, that. And, and boy, I can never say this enough to, to young journalists. Read. People don't read. Don't I mean, read. It's unbelievable. It's... There's such incredible content out there, and people don't read. Plus, you're not only getting ideas. Think about sometimes the, the best ideas that are buried in the 18th graph, where you just see that nugget about the ancillary character, and you're like, Wait a second, what? Maybe that's an even better story. Tom, I, I want to go back to what we were just talking about because, you know, just kind of being in an uncomfortable or a peculiar or navigating through the start of an interview through it. I believe you were the first person to interview Tiger um, after he had the car accident, the whole affair, stuff became right. public. Okay, now you clearly had a trust with him from your years of, of – of covering him and dealing with him. But what was that like? Because this is the personal tiger that few of us had had to see. And he's now got some illicit negative coverage or, or behavior that's being exposed. So how would you go into that interview and tell the story using his words and giving him that forum, but also maybe not giving him an out when we know there's some information there that says otherwise? So, Steve, a couple of things for context, just so people know, right? We were able to do the first interview with Tiger. There were conditions, but nothing that limited us in terms of the scope of what we could ask. But the conditions were real, and they were challenging. Five minutes, no more. And these next two may, may strike you as odd. Standing and outside. Now, why those? Think about it. Feels less confessional if you're standing than if you're seated. Feels somehow less intimate if it's outside rather than inside. So these were smart on on uh, from his camp. They, they, I think I think they were very very smart conditions. And the other thing is, 
if you're going wildly over the five minutes, <laughs> if you're standing and you're outside, exit visas are imminent. And, 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 all right, see ya. And I'm walking off. So, so I think all that made sense. So I think the interview turned out to be maybe five and a half minutes or so. We never shared with Tiger any anything that we were going to ask ahead of time, but I did chat with him briefly beforehand. I I went aside with him and I told him some of the simplest things that you can imagine. Like, Tiger, the questions are what you would expect them to be. And if they strike you as hard, that won't be a surprise. It's what you're going through is hard. And you don't need a guy, you know, with a bad haircut from Jersey to come here and tell you that, you know, you're living it. Another thing I said to him was, if I cut you off at any time, it's not out of a lack of respect or attentiveness. It's solely a byproduct of the time limit. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I said to him is, you know, just know this, that it can be easy to forget no matter what we're going through in a time that's challenging. It, there's a simple truth that can be easy to overlook. And that is that there is a tomorrow and that. Wow. Whenever it comes, whenever it comes by your definition, know this, that me and Diane and the kids, however you define it, we wish for your success. We do. And then, you know, very shortly after that, we did the interview. And I remember people suggesting to me, if, if unless you're soft, if you don't, he'll never speak to you again if you do it properly and, and all those things. And I've said this in, you know, to people who are close to me in my life, know this, guys, for whatever reason, I'm telling you, Tiger Woods has been fantastic with me, not only through my career professionally, but when I've gone through difficult moments and moments of loss in my life, he has reached out to me. He has expressed his own caring and concern for me which is amazing to me considering who he is and all the other things that come with that degree of fame. And, you know, I think again, to go back to this guys, I'd like to think that I asked the questions fairly, respectfully, directly. But what I didn't do was ask them from here or here. I tried to ask him that way as best I could. Tom, what's, I'm curious as to, your interviews all come off so polished and obviously you're well prepared. And I think that's something young people need to remember that preparation is key. As Russell Wilson likes to say, the separation is in the preparation. Um, but I'm wondering at the same time, we all have been in those situations where you have the awkward interview and no matter how much you prepare, that subject sometimes just doesn't really want to give up anything. How do you deal with that when you find yourself in those moments? Oh my gosh, where do you want to begin, Kevin? I've been in those—I mean—situations, and 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 you know, sometimes they're just live and out there. It isn't like, well, we can go back and take care of that in the edit. I mean, you know, it's happening just in the moment. And I have tremendous respect for, and am pretty compelled by Naomi Osaka. Uh, I mean, as a, an incredible athlete, an incredible story, I think someone who this year in it, at the U.S. Open who decided. What do you think? Right. What do you think? What do you like think? The seven, right. The seven, mm. uh, the seven masks for the seven matches with the foresight to do that with the seven names. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought I asked her what I would consider to be as neutral and open-ended a question as I could in a moment of absolute triumph for her. And to say, yes. you know, what what message were you sending? Well, well, what message did you get? Right. And I did not answer in that moment for two, I think, pretty obvious reasons. And yeah, was it awkward because I just didn't answer? Uh, perhaps, but... A, it's not my moment. It's her moment. And B, I think that in a sense, I'm listening to whatever else she might say. And so she did, I mean, as the interview went on live. But believe me, I've certainly been in those spots and I come away from them and I, you know, sometimes I I cringe and I think, oh my goodness, was that, <laughs> did that come out or come across as, as rough I, as it felt in the moment? Well, I remember watching that and, and I literally thought to myself, what would you have done in that situation? Meaning me. What, what would you have done, Jim? I, I don't know. Tom, it's so, it's, so, it's so. First of all, it's easy to sit back now in hindsight. No, and, and I get what that. I but done. even even with that benefit, would you have answered her? I, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't know. I can't give you an answer. I just thought, man, what an uncomfortable situation for her to turn that around on you. And ask but there that was question. a power in that from her. Oh, there you was. Know, absolutely. It doesn't make it any less awkward. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, and I've interviewed her in the past. And, you know, again, I'll use my stock line. It's not like we're going whitewater rafting next weekend, you know, but I but I know her. And that was her answer in that moment. And I respect that immensely. I respect her. I'm just curious what your process is for telling a story. How do you go about it? I I mean, you do your research, obviously. And and one of the benefits of being at an ESPN or someplace else, and I think people, they don't get enough credit are the producers who will help help prepare you for a story in terms of providing research material, all those sorts of things. But let's say you've got all your research material. What is your process for then going about telling your story, telling a story? Again, I I think, Jim, and I don't know, I. I find the interviews so foundational. They are, I mean, they, the importance of an interview in, in a TV feature to me can never be overstated. They are the absolute cornerstones from which to build the story. Then sometimes I think we think, okay, let's identify the chronology if it exists. Let's try to think about what the key points along that line are, but then also consider theme and consider character. Don't just be locked into the next point on the line. Consider theme and consider character. Consider what someone has shared in the interview, which doesn't fit so neatly into the spine of a chronology. And I think those are the ways ultimately that the body of the story grows its flesh and becomes fuller. When you are considered one of the best at what you do, which you are, as Mike Tomlin would say, the standard is the standard. And so you're expected to hit a grand slam. I'm using all these metaphors here. Every time you deliver a piece, is there pressure in that for you? Do you, do you, do you, do you, how do you measure whether or not you've succeeded? 
in, in reaching that standard? What a great question, Jim. I mean, and I, I'll toss that back to you because I think you guys, on again, on stories of this kind of note, and it isn't every story, thank goodness, but on the stories where someone has placed great trust in you, you guys already know the answer. Did I honor it? Did I honor the trust? Did I deliver? You know, not the, hey, I can't ever go back to Overtown. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? Like the opposite of that, to have somebody say, I've heard from people I haven't heard from in years. This is bringing other people back into my life. Listen, there's a trinity that I think we all try to follow, right? Accuracy, got to get it right. Empathy, am I, am I doing my best to just connect with you? And curiosity, how much am I, am I really earnestly interested in what you're taking the time and the vulnerability costs to share? I'm, I've never been on social media. I'm, I'm not on any social media platform. The only way I know what anybody thinks outside my sphere, my family, my friends, the people who I work for, or if somebody sends me something explicitly or directly. The story you did that I cannot watch enough is Arthur the dog. (laughs) And if you could explain that story, because when I saw it, I was like, no way. Okay, how's this going to end? No way. And it's continued getting better and better and better. So if you can explain that story, because I, I can't watch it enough. I can't. The story was just so incredible. And that's where I was like, how the hell did he get this? Okay, so two things, and I'm going to brace you, okay? First of all, all the credit, all the credit in the world goes to Kristen Lapis. Jim, I don't know if you ever had the chance to cross paths with Kristen She's an absolute superstar as a producer. I mean, like walks on water, superstar. And she's the one who found the story, which had gotten a lot of traction in that part of the world, but but really hadn't crossed over to the States. So she's the one who became aware of it, brought it to me. We pitched it. And God bless our betters who said, yeah, go and do this story on world adventure racing and this dog. And for those who don't know it, I just suggest that if you want to, to go and watch it. It's just, it's a, it's just an improbable story about a, a world adventure racing team, which is, again, for our generation, kind of like the eco challenge where people have to they have to traverse through different terrains in a race style format. And this stray dog that for some reason connects itself to this one team and its captain and the decision that he has to make okay steve arthur just died oh how long did he live though because he seemed like he was a, a quite the adult dog when you did the piece he, he did he lived so he lived a long time he was sick here through 2020 but just a few weeks ago he died mm. And, uh, you know, anyone who's obviously any dog lover knows that it's it's losing a a piece of yourself. You judge how much, but a piece of yourself. But in this case, again, if you see the story that Steve refers to, unbelievable effort that this team captain went through 
through government bureaucracy and red tape and all these other things to not only sacrifice his own competitive wish and drive to save this dog, but then to take the dog from one continent to another and give the dog a home that Arthur would have never had otherwise. Um, it, it just, again, Kristen Lapis is just such a goddess and she does, she, I'm so grateful to her that she had me be a part of telling that story. One thing that you said about all this, you and Tom, is that even beyond the dog, what I took from this is a story about human character. And these, these, this team leader had a decision to make. And, and you could learn so much about that individual based on the decision that he makes. So there, that's why that's the part that's great about storytelling. There are so many layers to stories. And then the question becomes the really talented ones like, like Tom are able to, to find those layers and to bring them but, out. But the, other, but the other great thing, guys, that, that we know is at such an awfully divided and, and divisive and difficult time, I've said this before. I don't know what your take is. The the institution that we happen to cover is by definition the most starkly divisive of all. You won and you lost. lost yeah. I mean, that's right. I mean, you yeah. can't get any more stark than that. And yet it retains, and I know people are gonna say that that I'm that I'm a Pollyanna. Listen, it's got all kinds of problems as an institution. We've written about that. We've each covered that in our own ways. I get it. But at least for me, and I think for you guys too, it retains a magic. It retains this ability to unite, to inspire, to, to put out into the world stories of greatness and excellence and its pursuit and the sacrifice and the bonding and the it's it's just it is such a great great area to work in sport is it's just the best i think we can close on that note that is the absolute truth well tom we absolutely appreciate you because you're the best and you know you know looking back at what you've done it's been incredible we know where you're headed it's going to be even better so we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the huddle and flow podcast I, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed it. You guys indulged me like no one in my house ever would. So I, I appreciate you so much. No, I look forward to seeing your work, man. Continue the great work. Steve, I said it would be educational. Um, look, we've been in this business. I'll speak for myself. I've been in this business since I graduated in 1986 from Howard and you're always learning. You never stop learning. And so to be able to listen to a guy like Tom, to hear his approach, his process, uh, his mindset with a story, there's so much I took away from it and so much I'm going to try and apply, you know, the next time I'm doing a, a broadcast feature or even, you know, like I say, there are components to that you can take and apply to print. So just um, so much respect uh, for Tom. And I, again, I think this is going to benefit, benefit a lot of young journalists out there. And, you know, and, and the fact now he's he's you know he's he's changing jobs at this point of his career. I mean, first off, it's like okay, it's nice to be in demand at this point of your career, but you know, with another network, just understanding what he can bring them. But let's say this too, and we said this, you know, off air. 
Um, it's one thing to talk about wanting to be on to be able to do NFL and Major League Baseball and all these things and making the, the change. But it also doesn't hurt that reportedly your salary gets doubled. So um, one thing I say to people, even players, never be afraid to say that it's about the money, too. It's OK. <laughs> you know, yeah, but, it's okay. but Jim, at, at this point of his career, I mean, think about it. a lot of people are like, OK, he's that guy. He is in this lane. We can we can find a young person and develop that next person. And Fox is like, we want him, and we're gonna pay him that money because he will bring stories to us: Super Bowl, World Cup, Major League Baseball, golf. Another another story where a dog is is you know finds some of these super triathletes, super Ironman runners, whatever. And he's and again, what he does, Jim. You know, ESPN's lucky to have had him to have it on a sports genre. His stories could go. On the Today Show, Evening News, whatever, because they're just so monumental. For him to give us uh, some of his time and make us better at what we do, like you said, to think about what we do um, was just absolutely fabulous. All right, so this was was one of those episodes, Jim, I think that it'll resonate a certain way. But I think Tom Rinaldi, being who he is, you out there really were treated to something special. So on that note, Jim, why don't you bring us home? Yeah, we thank you for listening. We thank you for subscribing. Please leave us your comments so that we can give you more of what you're funking for. All right. And, you know, you can find us on iTunes and on Spotify. And also hit that little search thing there, too, Jim, and find The Art of Storytelling by Outcast and Slicker. You'll be bobbing your head when you're on the Peloton. We know what's up with that. All right, everybody. Thank you. We'll be back later this week with University of Maryland head coach Mike Loxley. And, Jim, real quick before we get out of here, you know, Mike has got this this coalition for minority coaches. And we know come the end of next week or beginning of next week, there's going to be some coaches getting fired, some GMs getting fired. And what his coalition is doing is trying to introduce a lot of viable, qualified candidates, as we tried to do, to owners college presidents and whatnot. So this is going to be a really, really important discussion from somebody who's deep in the trenches and and really is trying to do the right thing to try to balance the scales. No question. It's all about at this point for Michael, it's not about identifying the problem. We know what the problem is. It's trying to find solutions. And he's got a a powerful group behind him. Um, But we'll get into more of that next week. But uh, definitely worth your time. All right, for our producer, Thomas Warren, my guy, Jim Trotter, I'm Steve Weitz. We are the Howard Mob, and we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. 
It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.